It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Sunday Civics. I am your host, your civics teacher, your neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams, and I am so glad that you made it to class this morning. This morning, this lovely Sunday morning, we are going to be talking to the chairman of the National Board of the NAACP, Chairman Leon Russell. Not only has he dedicated his entire life, both professional career and his charity work and engagement to social justice, to organizing, his professional career, it's almost 40 years of working in what would be broadly called the diversity inclusion space. But, you know, from our conversation with Ify a few Sundays ago, we want to challenge that space. But I thought it was important to bring someone else who's been in that space actually working at a government agency. He worked for the county um, Office of Human and Civil Rights for majority of his professional career, close close to uh, 35 years, and talk about the practical applications of what the things are that you do in those type of offices. Because obviously those programs, these things are under attack by folks who don't even understand them, who don't even understand the necessity of them. And so I thought it was important to bring someone to the front of the class that explains that a little bit And particularly on the local level, we talk a lot about the federal level and obviously a lot of our politics are discussed globally in the United States on the national level. What's happening in Congress? Who's the speaker? And all of that. And, you know, for those of you who came for a lesson on the speaker of the house, let me save you. (laughs) We're not doing that (laughs) this week. We are not having that conversation because there are other things that we can engage on. And particularly on the local and state level, when we're talking about diversity inclusion programs and diversity overall, it's not just in the education space as it pertains to college, that there is a real threat. It's also a threat on our county level, on our state level, because counties, states, even your town council and municipalities have these benchmarks that they have said. There's offices of human rights and civil rights and that are creating programs and working with governments to create mandates on how they diversify the workforce diversify the workforce of the county, diversify the workforce of the vendors that states use for different products, which also results in jobs. And if diversity and inclusion programs, affirmative action programs, things of that nature are attacked in one space. Don't think for a second that they're only focusing on college. No, it's a wholesale conversation because you see already there's now talk about grants and things that are provided to underserved communities in a private sector space. So it is important that we have a grounding and an understanding of what the purpose of these programs are, and then also the practical application of how we can implement changes and what these things, what these programs do, right? And primarily, 
if you're talking about local government, if you're talking about a local agency, even if you're talking about a local um, small business or a regional corporation, the reason why these things exist is to make sure that they are servicing a diverse economy, make sure they are serving a diverse community overall. And it's important for these programs to be mandated, particularly if you're talking about public dollars, so that it's not just dollars and information just going to one sector of the community and large sale communities and people are being left out of the opportunities. And so I wanted to bring someone who had that experience. You know, we we didn't have to get wonky with it, but to overall talk and bring out examples of how not having diversity programs can implement job readiness can result in people not applying for benefits that they qualify for, all because people are not looking at the diversity of the community in which they serve. So, you know, it was great to talk to Chairman Russell, not only about that, but also about the NAACP. And so when we come back from break, I'm going to dive right into our conversation with Chairman Leon Russell. Stay tuned. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the teacher? Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm L. Joy Williams, your civics teacher. And coming to the front of the class is the chairman of the National Board of Directors of the NAACP. You know, we talk about the NAACP a lot on this show. And who better than to talk about our next stages in our fight for civil and human rights than Chairman Leon Russell, who has dedicated his entire life and professional career to the pursuit of civil and human rights, not only in the volunteer role of the NAACP, here volunteer, people stay thinking we get paid, um, but also in our professional, in his professional career, serving over 35 years as a professional in the Office of Human Rights in a county in Florida. And he's also served as president of the International Association of Official Human Rights Agencies. So he has a lot of life experience in this work. Welcome to the front of the class for the first time, Chairman Leon Russell, hello. Hello, it's good to be here. Thank you so much. So now it's your first time at the front of the class. So we have to hear, even though we've, let's see, I've known you for a while now, but I don't know that I know the first time or your story of your first civic action. It's interesting. I'm getting an echo. Go ahead. I'll change it. Okay. So in, in, in my lifetime, I've done a lot of things, but my first real, and I consider this political uh, entree, actually occurred in high school. Uh, and it was something that we, we uh, called Student Government uh, Day, uh, when I actually was elected in, in my little uh, high school in Virginia. I was elected Commonwealth attorney. I ran for and uh, became Commonwealth attorney. 
and actually was in a courtroom with the actual Commonwealth attorney who uh, would be equivalent to a district attorney or uh, uh, prosecutor uh, in another jurisdiction. I was actually sitting in a courtroom uh, as a result of that uh, experience, participating in uh, really misdemeanors, but uh, <laughs> misdemeanor court that day. And, and that gave me a taste at probably 17, 18 of uh, what civics really meant, what government really meant, and what being engaged in government uh, really meant. And so from there, uh, over the years, just matriculated toward uh, municipal government uh, as a career. That's interesting as a number of people on the show always talk about how their first engagement was either with their parents or in school. And so it leads to the evidence as why schools and our communities and our households are actually the training ground uh, for setting the stage of someone being active and engaged. But, you know, you've uh, been around for a while. <laughs> what? How do you interject when people don't have that baseline? When people don't have either, you know, have it engaged with their family, or have it engaged, or have it engaged, or have it engaged, or have it engaged. So quite often, people use the phrase they took civics out of schools, but they didn't take it out of our community, they didn't take it out of churches, <laughs> you know, or our households. What is another engagement point that people uh, can? Uh, or how can we intervene when people don't have that baseline? I, I think you, you, you hit on a very important uh, area when we talk about opportunity. I interpret it as opportunity and being given opportunity. And it's about who you know, who you're exposed to and what you're exposed to, particularly at uh, young ages. And so for me, it, it's about bringing particularly young people into processes because I was brought into process uh, at a very young age. I think 16, 17 uh, is young. I think it's an opportunity to get to know how systems work, particularly government works. I think being exposed not just to a civics lesson, but to government in action, whether it being how being uh, uh, seeing how social work plays a role in people's lives, either for good or bad, uh, it's being exposed to the the judicial system, not just from a negative standpoint, but being exposed from the operational standpoint. So I think that Student Government Day uh, experience was extremely important for me to see what went on on the other side of it and to have people who were willing to spend that time, uh, you know, giving you that exposure. I think those are the things. I think from, it's, it's also having people understand how civics, how politics, how public policy uh, impacts their lives. 
at very early age, whether it's the siting of a church. People uh, talk about, uh, you know, we have some churches that say, well, uh, we leave the the political thing uh, we, aside. We don't bring that in our church. But the fact is that you can't avoid that because somebody, some politician gave permission to put the church in the site that the church is sitting in. If, if, if you go through a permitting process. And I'm always telling people that you have to understand that government is involved in your life from the very day that you were born. You're not acknowledged as being born if some politician, some uh, bureaucrat doesn't sign a birth certificate that says you exist. And that runs with you throughout your life. You're not dead. You can't be buried until somebody, some public policymaker, signs a death certificate that allows an undertaker to do what an undertaker does. And so every aspect of our lives is impacted by public policy, which is impacted by whether we participate or don't participate in the civic processes. Yeah. So, you know, part of the questions, I know you probably get the same um, experience where people believe that government and the bureaucracy that happens is something that happens to them, that they don't, you know, participate in it as you use the example, whether it be churches or other aspects of our community. Um, and it's been our experience that when you get people active and engaged, they can see the process, 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 process. You know, it's like, oh, you know, other people are participating in this, you know, this interweb <laughs> of bureaucracy and they're getting what they need and also what they want from the system because they are participating. Um, and, and that's really the message I try to, uh, to to give to people is like, you can decide not to engage, but then you're not getting what you need and what uh, you want from the system that we're supposed to participate um, in. What would you say, um, you know, uh, is what we need and what we uh, want and deserve from the system at this time, right? Like, why are you? Why do we need to be involved at this time? Well, and I come at this as an advocate. So, I'm, I mean, I've been an advocate for so long that I can't divorce myself from being an advocate. What I understand is that government impacts us whether we engage or not. And if we want that interaction to be positive, if we want something good to happen in our community, if we want something that is not proper to be fixed in our community, uh, we have to understand that we have to engage. And, and by engagement, I don't mean just solely participating in a, an election, because we have this tendency to believe that if we elect someone, that person is then responsible for taking care of everything. What we have to understand is that we have to engage not just the people we elect, but we have to engage the bureaucracy, period. We have to be present. We have to go to meetings. We have to go make ourselves known to those people who are implementing policy so that they can understand what our needs are 
and so that when they are when our needs are not addressed we can legitimately challenge what they did or the inverse is that by addressing the bureaucracy by addressing and participating in the process we can head off that failure to act with a positive response to our needs and so we have to engage we have to tell people what we want what we need and then hold them accountable for not getting it or for actually producing results that benefit us yeah so as i mentioned at the top you have decades of experience uh, as a official in the office of human rights on a county level and right now we're in the state where a number of people feel that is under threat given the Supreme Court case that impacted how two particular colleges implemented their pro <laughs> implemented their programs. It didn't say everybody need to close up shop, but everybody's deciding, you know, a lot of people are deciding to close up shop on different programs and initiatives because not only of the case, but the threat of a case, the threat um, of being challenged. I wonder from your perspective and your professional, both an av uh, uh, lifelong advocacy, where you see where we can be on the offensive in the strategy, not only defending what was previously gained, but how we can chart a new course for how we are implementing uh, uh, diversity programs and engagement to be able to give everyone that opportunity that you mentioned at the top? I think the first part of it is that we have to we have to demand as a community that particularly government and industry recognize that diversity is a requirement. It's not just a good feeling, but diversity is a requirement because at the end of the day, we have to have programs, we have to have employment opportunities that are representative of the communities where we live. We, and, and in order to do that, we have to put that demand on the table up front. Uh, that's my uh, move into, into uh, public service, uh, particularly as I moved to Pinellas County, Florida, came about because the end. Here's, here's that, that line of demarcation that we can't cross, but the NAACP sued Pinellas County government for employment discrimination because there were there were like 2000 employees at the time, but only 50 of them were black in a county that had a population that was almost 10% black. Come on, where's the representation? Okay, so, so they were sued. Uh, they felt the need to create an Office of Equal Opportunity, an Affirmative Action Program. Once we got there and we created that Equal Opportunity Program, there were things that we had to look at. Uh, people don't understand. People will say, well, uh, there's, there's no qualified candidates available to fill this job. Well, there are qualified candidates, but you have to make it known to them that there are jobs to be filled. We at, at the time that I took over my job, <laughs> even though there were three newspapers serving the county, the county would only advertise in 
the smallest newspaper serving the county seat, which did not have the majority of the black population in it. You have to sit down and identify the issues, the reasons why opportunity is not broadly available, and then you have to do something to change that. So what we did, quite frankly, was go in and adjust the county charter to include equal opportunity and diversity as one of the priorities in the county charter, the county constitution, if you will, the, the document that drove, that determined what the county had authority to do. And, and that's pursuant to Florida state law, that we had the ability to do that as uh, a self-governing entity uh, in this state. And so we, we created sections of the charter to deal with those questions. We went back and we looked at the personnel policies. We looked at the basic policies that operated how things were done in the county. And we sought to identify barriers to creating the diversity that we said we needed to create, eliminated those barriers and put in place practices that promoted diversity rather than discouraged diversity. And, and, and what I'm saying there, without getting too deep into the, to the weeds, is you have an obligation to identify the barriers, eliminate the barriers, and put in place things that make diversity real. That was, that was the way I worked for 35 years. Now, the other side of that coin, I always, and, and you know, don't pat yourself on the back too hard, but I always worked to ensure that I understood the law and I understood how the law was, was going to be interpreted. I also always made sure that the county attorney and I were on the same page, that the legal staff was supporting the actions that I recommended. And that's the way that, that from a bureaucratic standpoint is the way that I would recommend that people who are inside government work. Uh, just to give you a, a, a feel for, for what that meant for me, we went from, uh, we, we, the system was worked with what we call employees of the county administrator, which is the those county commissioners are elected. They appoint a county administrator and, and that person runs the general operation of the county. But we also had constitutional officers, a supervisor of elections, a sheriff, a clerk of, the, of courts. All of those people had to be brought into the system uh, so that the system worked. We dealt with the supervisor of elections who's responsible for running elections in our county to make sure that elections were accessible to every community and everyone in our communities. Going down to the, to the, to the fact that, you know, no, you cannot have the precinct and First Baptist Church, which requires people to climb 20 steps to get into the building. If you're going to do, you you got to do the, the ground floor level where people can come in uh, on a ramp or from the straight from the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. You've got to identify those signs. So that's what we did. 
Well, we're talking with Chairman Leon Russell, the chairman of the National Board of the NAACP, given his wealth of experience <clears throat> in the Office of Human Rights and using examples of what people would describe as work, as work, as work, as work. You mean I have to look at like read policies and build relationships and, you know, do all of this. I can't just say, okay, we got this many black people, this many black people applied, this many Asian people applied. We got one. There's one working in the office. Diversity. You mean that's not all that is required? No, it is not all that's all <laughs> that's required. And, and, and you bring up a good point because I think people also have to understand that when we say diversity, we have to be real about it. And I understand that that for my community, I'm, I'm representing black folks, but I also have to represent women. I have to represent the Asian, the indigenous, whoever else is represented in that community. I have to represent them as well uh, from my bureaucratic standpoint. That means bringing everybody to the table and having an opportunity for everybody to participate. Uh, you have to be intentional. You have to be intentional about it. Well, a lot of people see the office, whether it's the city office of human rights, whether it's the office in your office, in your office, in your office, in your uh, establishment or in your business, they see it as antagonistic, right? You know, you're telling me what I can't do or what I'm about to be sued for or that they are basically there just to do the bare minimum um, to prevent them from getting sued or shut down. How do you change that viewpoint amongst folks, and you know, particularly who may not believe that diversity is their core mission? They may believe mm -hmm. my core mission is building the gadget that I wanna sell. I don't care about diversity. I'm just trying to get as many iPhones sold as possible. And, and, and that's true. But you, you, you've got to sell those iPhones to somebody. You've got to sell the iPhones to somebody. And whether or not I deal with Henry, Henry Ford's uh, political stance on things, he understood that when he built the Model T, the people who were building the cars were going to be the people who were buying the cars. And so he had to have a workforce that <laughs> could, in fact, buy cars. So if you're going to sell iPhones, you need to sell as many iPhones to as many people as you can. That means you need to reach out to my community to sell iPhones too. It helps you sell iPhones if you have a workforce that looks like me, that looks like our community. Uh, that's that's the pure, that's the most pure and simple way that I can state it. Uh, the workforce will help you sell your product. The way the workforce looks will determine who will come to buy your product. And so we have to, we have to engage folks. Uh, the other side of the coin is we do have to have law. We do have to have law. Because at the end of the day, I might not change your heart. But I can change some of your behavior by making sure that I have regulation and laws that require some things. Well, that and that's uh, certainly the truth. It never under, I, I never understood even 
you know, being in <clears throat> business classes or things with folks and they're they would be dismissive of, you know, the diversity issue. And I'm like, you understand that we're going to be the majority, like, in the very near future. So who are you selling to, <laughs> like, if you're not thank, engaging thank from a workforce standpoint, from a marketing standpoint, like, the, like it, it, it helps your bottom line, your, your balance sheet, having the diversity because... That's who the customer base is going to be. And, you know, it never, well, I know why, (laughs) you know, because people are trained that way. Exactly. So we have to untrain them. (laughs) Right, right. You know, I want to, um, I use as an example sometimes when, you know, folks will call the NAACP, their local NAACP, when they're in trouble for everything. Right. You know, they call. I always use as an example. I had this very far fetched example. I'm working in the office late and this um, black gentleman comes to my office. He wants my help because his girlfriend, who is white, keeps calling him the N word. And I'm like, sir, I the NAACP cannot cannot help you with that. But I use that as a far fetched example of people will call who they believe they can trust in this instance, the NAACP for anything related to, you know, racism or perceived slight police brutality, any of those things. Right. And it reminds me that from our historical standpoint, office of human and civil rights didn't always exist. Right. We had to fight for those things to exist. And therefore the NAACP branches themselves served as that office for a number of places across the country. Now that there are official channels, be it within your union, be it within the city or your corporate entity, you know, because people don't have to come to our office for that particular ask that there is the formal process, you know, people are disconnected and thinking that, oh, well, NAACP doesn't help me because they're not taking on my individual case and becoming my personal lawyer to address these issues. I wonder how, what your advice is to um, not only NAACP, because I'm sure other legacy civil rights organizations in the community deal with this as well, where you are not, we're no longer serving that particular role, sort of the day-to-day, sort of how we help community to understand and walk through the process. So I think it's important for us to understand that in, in the first instance, an NAACP branch or any other civil rights organization probably should never have represented itself as as being the attorney for or providing the attorney for uh, a particular individual uh, situation. And that holds true today. What also holds true today is even though there are public agencies out there that are available for people to make their complaints, EEOC, uh, a local human rights agency, uh, some other form of ombudsman uh, program, even in the union, everybody who is able to benefit from that does not always know how to interact with those agencies. So what the NAACP has to be is a referral agency and an explainer. And I say an explainer, and I know that's a crazy kind of a word, but sometimes we just have to help people understand what the process is and then refer them 
to the appropriate people who can work with them to get them through the process. So there is there there continues to be that advocate's role for the NAACP. And that's that's what people need to understand. Our purpose here is to ensure that people have access to the services that are available to them, to the programs that are made available for them. That's our job. That's our job. Yeah. Well, it's also our job um, in, <clears throat> we haven't talked in detail about um, since the national organization issued a tribal advisory um, for your home state of Florida. And there was a lot of buzz and commentary. NAACP is telling people not to go to Florida or, you know, banning black people from Florida. And what about the black people already in there? I was like, you can't ban people from a place they already live in. Like, talk this through, people. <laughs> But, um, you know, I, I thought it obvious, you know, it was obvious that you sort of pinned the op-ed, pinned the advisory, given that Florida is your home state. You served as Florida state president um, and have been active and engaged in Florida for some time. I wonder your thoughts on your state right now. Um, and it seems that at least from my lifetime, we've been dang on Florida for <laughs> we've said that a number of times since <laughs> my life. <laughs> it's, it's unfortunate, but yes, uh, if, if, if you want uh, the example of bad public policy, uh, Florida is it. Florida is it at the present time. Now, hadn't always been that way. We've had public officials in Florida who did understand that they've served an entire community, an entire state, and everybody who lived in the state. There, there once was a group of people who did that. Not anymore. We have to work with it. Why an advisory? Why an advisory rather than a boycott or a ban? Very simply, you said it. We, we There are more Black folk in Florida than in uh, most states combined. So first of all, we're not going anywhere. So the issue is that we have to work internally to be treated fairly and to be safe and healthy in our home. That's here in Florida. We issue an advisory that says, look, there are some public policies here that you need to be aware of. You need to be advised of these policies and you need to make determinations about how you will interact or not interact with these uh, policies if you're thinking about Florida. So if you want to come to Florida, if your organization wants to meet in Florida, there's no problem with that. Uh, except that we want you to stand up and speak to the issues that Floridians face that are being spread across the country. We want you to talk about public education and support for public education and the fact that banning books does not make any sense, particularly banning books that are written by black authors or uh, gay authors or uh, environmentalists that you don't like. We don't need people to do that. You need to be aware that that's happening in the state of Florida. You need to be aware of how black people may be in danger because of Florida's unsafe gun laws and regulations. Uh, the fact that you can now walk around with a, a, a open carry uh, uh, a gun without 
getting a permit in Florida is a scary thing. It's a scary thing, particularly when we see the Parkland uh, shootings at, in schools, and, and Parkland wasn't the first. Uh, we've had a number of school shootings in Florida. We see mass shootings all over. This is dangerous for our people, dangerous for our children. We need to make you aware. That's, what we, that's why we're advising you of what the situation in Florida is. And we're saying that you as an individual need to look at this, but as organizations, we need to think about whether or not we can support corporations, whether we can support government entities that don't support us. And so we're saying yeah. you have to be real. Yeah, no, I, I think it was in, you know, from my perspective, I think it was ingenious because, you know, quite often people romanticize having a boycott or um, some kind of economic impact and saying, yeah, we should just not spend our money. And it's like, dude, we can't even get you not to go to the liquor store chicken <laughs> place up the street, right? Like, how do you think a massive national a boycott of something like there's infrastructure that work that you talked about of hand that is required in order to do that. And particularly now where you have, you can say you're boycotting a particular brand. Well, it's owned by a multinational company that has, you know, lots of brands. Right. And Absolutely. so, how, yeah. So how you implement that in this kind of um, uh, bastardized uh, uh, capitalist system that we have now is difficult. You know, it's not just one store, you know, one entity. It's a lot of interconnected things. And so entering it as an advisory, certainly advisory, certainly advisory, certainly advisory, certainly um, it highlights the issues, but then also puts the onus on these individual, whether they're organizations having conferences, you personally traveling, and then it says you have to do the work. And I wonder your thoughts, because I do find myself sometimes pushing as a president of a branch where people always want us to do something, but they don't want to do it, participate, spearheaded. And I'm like, what are you going to do? Right? Like, it can't just be us. And I feel like everyone is always looking for civil rights groups or even activists. You go lead the march. You go do this. And it's like, yeah, but it can't just be us. No, it's it's got to be everybody. And, 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 and we have to make room for everybody. We have to make them aware that they have to come to the party. They have to participate. Uh, why is it important for them? We have to sit down and talk about the laws, civil rights. I cannot, I, I don't understand how we could talk about civil rights uh, in the United States in 2023 and not say that that part of that is women's rights. And we're not talking about black women, although black women are, are more likely than any other group to die from childbirth. But if we're talking about a woman's right to choose, that's all women. And so all women have to be here to talk about women's health, to talk about access to women's health care. And we have to make it clear that what we're talking about are public policies that, yes, negatively at this point impact black folk, 
But if we fix it for black folks, we fix it for everybody. Because if it's negatively impacting black people, there are other people in the community who are being negatively affected or who will be negatively affected by bad public policy. Yeah, you, you know, you said uh, something that I want you to expand on a little bit more. You talk about speaking to people if we want to invite them to the party, making them feel welcome. And in an institution that sometimes people have a view of us being old and stuffy, <laughs> right? How, how do you, um, whether it's, um, you know, an institution like ours or just a general uh, a cause of action that you're advocating that's not even attached to a specific organization, mm -hmm. how, in your view, do you make a space welcoming? Because I'm going to be honest with you. If somebody saw your picture and they looked at you, Right. They'd be like, yeah, I don't look like somebody who's like sort of welcoming <laughs> for all aspects of the community. They don't know your heart, Chairman Russell. <laughs> so, and, and, and I, I think that this is this is important. I, I think particularly and let me let me boil it down. I think. In the first instance from an NAACP standpoint, we have an obligation to understand that we have to bring young people into this fight, into this struggle. And we have to do it intentionally. It's not accidental. We have to reach out. We have to encourage folks to be a part of it, but we have to pr provide a place where young folks and other folks can participate. That's, that's why I have this, I always get a little upset when I see an adult branch not wanting to deal with its youth council, not understanding that it, yes, the youth council should have some autonomy, but they should also be a part of what you do. And they don't need to always be ushers. They can be program participants. They can be speakers. They can speak to issues. They can represent you, but they can do things that they do much better than other folks do. And we have to be aware of that. We have to invite and we have to make folks feel comfortable being in this space. Yes, uh, unfortunately, I know our average age is 65 plus, but all of us have nieces, nephews, grandchildren, children uh, that we ought to be bringing along and that we ought to be engaging in this process. By the same token, we ought to be open to anybody who sincerely believes in our mission and our vision and wants to work with us on the things that we are working on in our communities. We should not shut the door on anyone. And I, I think that's that's the key. We we must be intentional. We must be aware. Uh, don't judge the book by its cover. Take let's look at what we do and how we do it. Uh, I, I'm always either plagued or uh, or very conscious of the fact that somewhere down the line it seems like I have 150 children, even though I don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's, but but to me, 
I might I might look like that hardened person, but for some reason, I've got all of these young folks who have attached onto me for years, and who I've grown have grown up with me, and I hope it's because I've I've provided an opportunity for them. I've provided a way. Uh, we don't always agree on what the best way is, but we figure it out, and we work. You know, we work through those things, and you have to be willing to do that. Well, Chairman, thank you so much for making time uh, for Sunday Civics and um, for sharing your wealth of experience and advice for those who are either, you know, thinking about getting engaged. There may be some folks listening who are in there working in the Office of Human Rights in their county, in their city, um, and need this word of encouragement in terms of the work that they are doing. Um, so thank you so much for making time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It took us a while to get it together. Uh, and hopefully this won't be our last conversation. We'll be right back with more Sunday Civics. Stay tuned. How can it be? Back here on Sunday Civics, this is L. Joy. Thank you to the chairman of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, Chairman Leon Russell, for joining us in our conversation today. I, I thought it was important to bring practitioners into the diversity and inclusion space. And that's the reason why we talked to IFI and also talking to Chairman Russell to talk about the practical implications of this conversation that we're having. Yes, um, we want to create standards and we want to create programs that actually mandate and require diversity and inclusion. But it's important to also talk about what that looks like in practical application and how you can do that not only in the public space, so in education, in colleges, in schools, in government, if you will, because we can get a have a whole nother conversation about how government <laughs> is not diverse as well in some places. And you need that mandate. Otherwise, people left to their own devices will only create programs or things that speak to the majority or their uh, particular community bent. And so if you mandate that you have to look broader, that you have to look into the communities and the pockets that you don't know about, which mandates you to actually think about that in a critical way about the community that you serve, those things are important. It helps us to address our blind spots in general. And that's the reason why you have to mandate it, why you have to create a law. I have some action steps for those of you who listen to this conversation, particularly if you work in public service, you work at a government agency, either on the federal, state, or local level, to think about and to look at the practices that exist 
in that public space? Are they sufficient? Can you provide suggestions and examples for those offices or that officer on how they can do more effective work in the communities that we're not thinking about? Also, if you are in a private space and there is that office to query or to provide yourself as a resource to like places that they may not be thinking about to place job advertisements, for example, different schools, different societies, different institutions. We are in those spaces and a lot of people aren't. And so how can you lend your expertise and information into that space. And then lastly, because I, I, I don't want you to be silent, I want you to engage and we need to push for on the local level that we have these standards in place. Because let me tell you, most people in these spaces, they want to, even in the nonprofit sense, and particularly the place where I work, is everybody wants to do a diversity and inclusion statement. They spend a lot of time and in the nonprofit space, they spend a lot of money on a consultant to help them craft the right language in order to have a diversity and inclusion statement. That statement that they can put in reports, that statement that they can put on their website, that statement that they can read or create social media posts about. But what does that mean in practical application, <laughs> as we discussed with Jeremy Russell, given his experience? And so not so much focusing on the right statement that will strike the right chord, that'll get you the right funding. It's also how you can implement that and how you can implement that locally. And that's why I'm always a big proponent of us getting involved in local public policy and engagement. It's where you can have a more direct engagement and response. You may not get the ear of Biden. You may not be able to speak directly to Chairman Fudge or heads of agencies on the federal level, but you can in your local town council. And so to look at, from a public standpoint, what the practices are, and Chairman Russell gave in a good example, just think about where your county, where your city, where your state advertises available employment opportunities. Is it diverse enough? You can just start there. And because we all know people and communities that are underserved in terms of access to opportunities, maybe we ought to think about the diversity of where these opportunities are placed. And that's something simple. It's easy. It's attainable, right? It's a simple action. Those little small, simple actions make huge impact that you can be able to find people who are qualified and engaged by just diversifying where you're placing the information. So that's all I have for you today here on Sunday Civics. We'll be back next week. I'm excited. I'm so excited about next week's conversation. Next week, we are talking about child poverty, and we're going to have the president and CEO of the Children Defense Fund for a wide-ranging conversation about faith and also the fact that we already, we've already solved child poverty. We already know what we can do about it. It's just the willingness of not treating it as a, another political football and actually committing to do something about it. So we're going to have that conversation when we're back next week with more of Sunday Civics. Have a great week. Oh,